You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 115. On this episode, I'm interviewing Amazon number one best-selling author, Paul Levine, a former trial lawyer who's the author of 22 novels. His latest book, Cheater's Game, is a legal thriller based on the real-life college admission scandal that has dragged up some pretty famous actors, including Felicia Huffman and Laurie Laughlin on Becky from Full House. So I'm excited to talk about Paul, about his books, about the uh, college admission scandals, and a lot more. So stay tuned for that coming up here in a moment. I wanted to share with you, though, again, it's been kind of a surreal week again here in Northern California with these uh, wildfires. As I've mentioned before, my wife and I are staying at a wine country home in the Napa Valley. We were awakened at, uh, by a call at 4 a.m. on a Sunday telling us that there was a fast moving fire approaching down the ridge of the mountain hillside and we had to get out right now. So we grabbed our three dogs, little else, and just uh, ran outside. We could see the flames on the hillside uh, right where we were at. And even scarier than that, we could hear the fire crackling. So we um, put the dogs in the car and got out of Dodge. We made it out safely and headed back to our place here in San Francisco. It's been numbing on television to watch the uh, area that we've been living in since June uh, uh, ablaze. Uh, but there is good news. It appears that the house has survived. Uh, we'll see. We'll know more about that here in the next uh, few days. Uh, we're still under evacuation orders. And all my computer, all my podcasting gear, all that stuff is still up there. So I'm recording this intro on my iPhone. So apologies if the audio is subpar. And I'm also editing this uh, podcast on an old computer since my computer's up in uh, wine country still. Uh, but I wanted to do this because it's a good distraction, so I wanted to put this uh, podcast together. Big shout out to the amazing first responders out there. As we were driving away from the fire, the brave men and women of the uh, fire and police departments were rushing towards it. Uh, we write and read a lot about uh, paperback heroes. These uh, first responders are the real deal. So just uh, a lot of appreciation uh, for those uh, brave people. And also an apology on my side of the uh, audio for this uh, interview. It appears that I uh, pointed the uh, and selected the wrong channel to record for my side. So it sounds like I'm in a tunnel. It just doesn't sound very good and um, can't really clean that up. Uh, but luckily, uh, Paul's side uh, is uh, really good, and that's the most important part anyway. Uh, so my apologies, uh, but... Uh, this is it's sometimes uh, we have technical issues, uh, but luckily, like I said, Paul's side is good. So here we go. Uh, hi, everybody. On this episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Paul Levine, a former trial lawyer, author of 22 novels, including the uh, Solomon versus Lord and Jake Lasseter legal thrillers. His latest book is Cheater's Game, which is a legal thriller which digs deep into the real life college admission scandal. Uh, good morning, Paul. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Alan. Great. And it's nice to talk to you. Uh, from here in Santa Barbara to you up in uh, Napa. Yeah, not too, not too far. <laughs> not too far. Yeah. Just a couple of, couple, of, couple of writers on the California coast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so can you tell, for those listeners who might not be familiar uh, with your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Uh, as, as you uh, suggested, I am a recovering lawyer. <laughs> I actually practiced 17 years trial law in Miami, uh, most of it with a really big, boring law firm where um, I did uh, large, complex civil litigation, which is sort of a uh, code for really boring civil litigation. And I, I think as therapy, when I was getting close to 40, or I was 40, uh, instead of getting 
therapy, I sat down and I wrote To Speak for the Dead, which was the first Jake Lassiter book, creating a trial lawyer who, unlike me, was not bound by convention or the ethical rules and did whatever the heck he wanted. Um, and that was published in 1990. Cheater's Game, the new book, is 2020, obviously. So there's a 30-year and 14 novels in that particular series. Um, and Jake got me out of the courtroom when I put him, fictional him, into the courtroom. Wow, that's a so thirty year history of the of the series. That uh, that must be pretty cool. Uh, the, why do you think it's had such a great uh, staying power for all these years? Judging from the reactions I get from readers' emails and when I do a public appearances, if we can all remember now during COVID what public appearances were, we'll have to tell our children. This is how we used to do it. We used to go around the country and do book signings. Uh, not, zo- well, not on Zoom. <laughs> not on Zoom. Uh, I believe it's because. Starting with the first book, his, call it cynicism, I almost hate to use that word because it has such a negative connotation, skepticism is probably better, about the justice system and always looking for justice, or as he says in To Speak for the Dumb, always looking for the good guys and not finding them. And it's a quest that I think is imbued in the human condition uh, that we want to see justice, meaning we want to see the innocent protected, we want to see the guilty punished. And um, he's kind of an arm of that. And uh, book after book, um, it, it, of course, it's not always black and white. I mean, it's not always a person walks into a bank and shoots a bank teller. There, there are gray areas. And I like exploring the gray areas, particularly in the newest book, Cheaters Game, which is based on the college admission scandal, that it's all gray. And um, I do believe this appeals to people. Yeah, you seem to really be able to do that, to like really look into like why people do what they're doing. Like you're saying, it's not just they're bad, and that's you know why they did what they did. Well, I think in, a, in most good books in the crime fiction genre or the thriller genre or mystery, generally speaking, this probably wouldn't apply if you're doing a serial killer book who is a psychopath, uh, but generally speaking, in, in the uh, crime fiction genre with a little bit more sophisticated villains, they don't think they're villains. They think, okay, I'm doing this because I can do this. I'm doing this because the banks are corrupt or this company I'm bezzling from is corrupt. They have rationalizations and they have reasons. And uh, once in a while, uh, we we are even uh, taken to rooting for villains. And, and we know in, in popular culture, whether it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or even Bonnie and Clyde or... Um, those movies in Las Vegas when they're knocking off the Ocean's Eleven movies, mm-hmm. they make uh, the good writers can make you root for the people who otherwise would be villains. So it's this kind of a wonderful stew in in crime fiction. Yeah, and for me, you know, like like most people, with the whole when the college uh, admission scandal came out, I was fascinated because you know about the Aunt Becky and <laughs> all the famous and rich people. 
Um, <laughs> when you when you first saw that, right away, did you start thinking this might be a good Jack Lasseter book idea? <laughs> the moment that the scandal broke, which was March of last year, 2019, and they perp walked all of these uh, parents and coaches into court um, for their arraignments. And the U.S. attorney in Boston who was handling it, um, I, I was just dumbfounded. And this is sort of how naive uh, I am. And, and just for your listeners who may not be following the scandal as closely <laughs> as you and I have, this was a scandal masterminded by a guy in L.A. We can use his name. He's pleaded guilty. Rick Singer, who bribed coaches at some of our elite universities, bribed proctors at SAT and ACT uh, sites, hired an imposter, really smart guy, to take other people's SAT exams, to take kids' SAT exams. He was no longer a kid. He was a Harvard graduate and an SAT tutor, among other things. Um, and he was able to get very accomplished, very wealthy, very smart parents to not question the legality or the morality of what they were doing when they were paying, in many cases, enormous sums, hundreds of thousands or even more than a million dollars to get their child into USC, Southern Cal, instead of having to go to SMU, Southern Methodist. When I read that, uh, Alan, my first thought was, USC is that hard to get into? I don't know. <laughs> that would be somebody from UCLA would say that. But um, Yale was involved, Wake Forest, Stanford, USC, a whole bunch, uh, Georgetown, a bunch of really, really good universities. And he was able to corrupt the people who worked there, some people who worked there. But to me, the most astonishing thing, and this is what led me to want to write about it, was the parents. What's going through a father's mind when he is caught on tape saying to um, Singer or one of his people something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, little uh, Johnny isn't the brightest bulb in the chandelier. <laughs> and, and what is it saying to your child, even if you don't say that out loud, if you're bribing people to get your child into college, well, I'm, I think what it's saying is I don't think you're good enough. Mm -hmm. I don't have faith in you. So I'm going to commit a crime, arguably a crime. People are pleading guilty, so I guess it is. I, we can talk about that a bit. Uh, but I'm certainly doing something immoral to get you into a place of learning where you learn, among other things, uh, philosophy and morality. <laughs> There's something wrong here. So, yeah, I thought, how in the world am I going to get Jake Lasseter into that world? And the way to do it, because Jake has raised his nephew from the time the kid was about 10, was sort of a savant, really, really smart, but socially awkward and all of that. And uh, I made him the imposter who took other people's SAT exams and 
it, when he's doing it, not even caring about the morality of it, also then creating this family dynamic of Jake Lasseter saying, how have I failed him? How have I failed to instill in my nephew, who I've raised as my son, these standards of conduct that he's taking large sums of money to impersonate high school students and take their SAT exams? What? It's a, it's a body blow to him. So he has to deal with that. And then he has to try to keep his kid out of federal prison, um, which is you know, brings up the, the classic lawyer's dilemma. You have to vigorously defend your client um, and force, force the prosecution to prove its case, even, uh, obviously, even when you know the client is technically, technically guilty. Um, so, obviously, I had a lot of fun with that. And did you, you all touch up in the... Uh Brain injuries that we see in football, uh, I noticed that uh, that's something that you also address uh, in your book, which I thought was fascinating because it's gotten so much press the last few years. The last three books, Jake Lasseter has had uh, CTE symptoms. And for your listeners who might not know, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the uh, always fatal brain disease that comes from repetitive, repetitive head injuries, uh, usually concussions, but you don't even need concussions. It can just be a lot of getting your head slapped in practice, uh, playing football. We're now worried not just about former NFL players, and Lasseter is a former NFL player. We're worried about high school players, about girls uh, playing soccer at, at uh, 12 years old, uh, doing a lot of headers. I'm exploring both the medical advances, which are not great, and what it does to a, to a person who's always been vigorous physically and pretty sharp mentally when you are starting to perhaps lose those faculties. And so Jack Lasseter is a lawyer and you're a, f a former lawyer. How much of him is in Jack, how much of you is in Jack Lasseter? <laughs> He's physically tougher than I am. <laughs> yes. I think in the uh, in the very first book, he, he says in interior monologue, he, he's in the courtroom, he goes, there I stood, 230 pounds of ex-linebacker, ex-public defender, ex-a-lot-of-things, leaning against the faded walnut rail of the witness stand, home to a million sweaty palms. You know, his... His way of expressing himself, his views of the world in what he calls the so-called justice system are mine, but because he is fictional, I can, I can create a guy who will punch you out <laughs> if, if you do something that he's a little bit unhappy with. And so, how much? So you you take all of it from all of these um, uh, real things going on and 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 out there in the real world. So, how much research do you put into your novels before you actually start to write them? Well, the medical parts, the CTE, uh, required a lot of research and updating in the books because new things are happening, and unfortunately, new people are dying. You know, when I created Lasseter in the book that was published in 1990, 
there's an awful symmetry that's coming here. My model, the person in my head, was Nick Bonaconti, who had been the Dolphins' middle linebacker, the Miami Dolphins' middle linebacker, and who had gone to law school and was a practicing lawyer uh, in Miami before he went into business, became quite a successful business executive, and then, of course, suffered, call it two tragedies. His son, Mark, was paralyzed, became a quadriplegic, making a tackle in a college football game, and Nick just died a few months ago of CTE. Mm. Uh, and how how bizarre is that? Um, but he was somebody so immensely popular, much more so I didn't want to make Lassiter a gigantic hero because I kind of thought it's more interesting if your character wasn't the greatest football player around, but, you know, it was what we used to call a ham and egger. Um, and in fact, he made, you know, Bonacani was an all-pro, very undersized linebacker. Jake Lassiter was the captain of the, of the special teams. Well, you know, everybody, for people who don't know, the special teams are often called the suicide squads in football. It's the kickoff and the punt teams. You know, he, he could make a, a tremendous hit, um, which also is not good for your head. But in terms of being a star, no. In fact, he once said, uh, most of the time I was sitting so far down Coach Shula's bench, my butt was in Hialeah. <laughs> so, you know, he was not he was not Nick Bonacani, but Bonacani's background helped fuel and, and inspire his character. And in Cheater's Game, the most recent book, I actually went back to it when it was in galleys because Nick had just died, and I wanted Jake to have a reaction to it. And, well, he cries, among, among other things. Um, and, of course, the fictional character, Lassiter, is seeing his own future in, in uh, the death of his friend. I made them friends. You know, why not? Mm. It's based on him. Um, so there is some uh, emotional content there. And that's the thing with the CTE also, if I believe um, you can't even be diagnosed for sure with it until after you're dead, right? The autopsy or... Exactly uh, the, the, the case. So that really uh, until and unless they send your brain tissue up to... Uh, this lab at Boston University or a few others around, you can't 100% say. When Jake learns this, and he's being treated in, in the books by Dr. Melissa Gold, a neuropathologist, um, you know, who wants to examine him. And you do MRIs and you do cognitive tests, you do other things. But she says we can only uh, positively diagnose in an autopsy. He goes, that's where I draw the line. That's, you know, we're not doing that today. So, yeah. Uh, they are working on things that might be able to diagnose. Wow. So, yeah, that really has changed. Uh, like, even now when you watch football and you see those hits, now it's like a, it really kind of changes. And the, never used to think to think about this, you know, five, ten years ago when I would watch a game. <laughs> well, and I think uh, a decade ago when you would watch uh, NFL highlights, or even the NFL would put together those, you know, great, sort of greatest hits, like a, oh, yeah. like a 
of pop singers' greatest hits. They have NFL greatest hits. And you would have these guys getting clotheslined or, uh, you know, getting hit from the blind side and their legs fly out from under them and they go over backwards and the helmet hits the turf and bounces off the turf. Well, they don't show those anymore. They still have even though there are some rule changes which are intended to protect uh, the players, uh, particularly targeting the head. But, um, God, some of us are old enough to remember the the hit. And you can only see it in black and white, but it's on YouTube. Chuck Bednarik, the middle linebacker of the Philadelphia Eagles, on a, per, a, a, a absolutely legal hit, hits Frank Gifford, kind of across the chest, high on the chest, and Gifford goes over backwards, and his helmet bounces off the frozen turf of Yankee Stadium in the 1960s. And when when Gifford died, um, not that long ago, uh, it was said that he had CTE. Obviously not from that one hit, but he played for however many years he played. Doing a little research before the interview is uh, you also wrote for a television series. You've written novels. You wrote for JAG. You co-created a, the Supreme Court drama First Monday, with which starred James Garner, was one of my favorites, and Joe Mantegna. So, what's the differences between those two worlds? Writing your novels, and writing for uh, Hollywood. Well, the the main difference is that in writing novels, of course, you're alone, you're solo, you're locked in a room for months. You don't talk to people, uh, except you know for research. But it 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 is a a true lone procedure. In a, on a television show, and uh, particularly in the, the classic uh, network shows, and and I worked on two network shows. I didn't have a long, uh, fabulous career. I didn't go to Hollywood to work in television until I was fifty, which is. It seems sort of ridiculous, uh, but I had an offer and I took it, um, a job I didn't apply for, but that's fine. On JAG, on CBS, you know, you have a writer's room. You have, uh, say, eight writers, and you break stories together. Uh, on that show, a little less than on some shows, but you have to plot out the season. If you're doing, in those days, 24 episodes you kind of need to know where your characters are in the beginning and in the end. And everybody has to know what everybody else is doing because somebody's working on episode three and you're working on episode five. You have to know what's happened in three. So they call it collegial, you know? Um, and when you have been working as I had alone for so many years, writing novels there, it's kind of fun to sit in a room with other people and toss ideas back and forth. Um, in comedy, and I've never been in a comedy writer's room, but I have friends who are comedy writers. It's even more so, you know, that pass jokes around and each, each guy tries to top the other with the, with the punchline. At the end of the day, if you were to ask me, which do you prefer? Probably, and, in, and it's maybe my personality, I kind of like being alone. <laughs> I kind of like the dark room the glowing monitor, the keyboard, uh, start with 500 blank sheets of paper, and it all has to come out of my head. And that, that fits better now, too, with the whole pandemic that we're going through. And now we have to uh, keep your social distance and all that, so we've been doing that for years already. See, it seems like 
every, every day that we are in this sort of semi lockdown, um, it, it seems longer and longer. I, I don't know how to explain it. So uh, maybe at the end of this, I'll be so starved for, for company that I'll want to be in large crowds. I don't know. <laughs> and so when you, when you write in your books, do you, um, you mentioned in the, the TV uh, works, there's a lot of plotting going on. Do you outline your books or do you just kind of write from the seat of your pants? Um, I'm an outliner and I have friends who do it both ways. I, I really, really need to know every move of, let's say, the first act, the point at which our protagonist's goal has been defined for him. We sort of know what the obstacles are going to be. And to me, it's really important that that first act, which is, can roughly be a third of the book, it can be shorter than that, that I really know that. And I will sometimes start writing then, and when I get to that point, the hero's quest is defined, the opposition, the obstacles seem to be apparent, though there may be twists. Then I go on and I outline, say, the next third or, two, or yeah, say the next third of the book. Not, that's not as highly organized as some people are who have the whole thing outlined and then they could just you know race through it and it's and it's not the way others who just start writing elmore leonard who i greatly admire and, and knew a bit back in the day in florida elmore leonard was once asked i was on a panel with him uh do you outline and he goes if i knew what the ending was why would i write the damn thing <laughs> <laughs> but you know our brains work differently mm -hmm. and um, if I if I get to a point like ah, I don't need to outline these next 10 chapters I'll find I'll I'll take start taking little side tangents and I'm really big on pace I think that readers like a fast-paced story and I also think if you look in our genre Alan if you look at thrillers and crime fiction from the 50s and the 60s, and look at them today, there is something to be said for writing more economically, more sparely, because I think for better or worse, our attention spans are less. And whether you, you want to blame the internet or YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, <laughs> whatever it is, um, I, I, I don't know if... And I'm not strictly speaking about the length of the novel itself, although there is that, too. Um, I don't think you see many thousand-page novels anymore. To talk about books that look like doorstops, right? <laughs> well, you could prop your door open with that. For me, being organized is the easiest way. Yeah, those are the first books. Uh, my dad was a big James Michener fan, so those were the first books I, I tackled. And I remember they were, like, crazy. It's like he he just go on for like 500 pages before you actually start getting into the story. <laughs> right. Michener, I don't know if he, I don't know if Michener created that, uh, his own deep dive into a place, but whether it was Hawaii or whichever ones, um, he employed a full-time researcher, at least one. And he was not shy 
about shoveling into the book. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Um, if, if I meant pejoratively, I would have said dump trucking his research into the book as opposed to using it for background. So if I remember Hawaii at all, it, it, it doesn't start with the missionaries coming to Hawaii in the 1800s. It didn't start with the Polynesians paddling their canoes from other islands and arriving in Hawaii in whatever years that would have been a few hundred years before that. He started it, I believe, uh, it's a long time ago, I read this, with the volcanoes <laughs> under the ocean forming the islands. And then an, a bird flying from another island and pooping on this rock. <laughs> and then a, a twig grows out of the rock, you know, and 500 years later, the rocks are bigger and you've got palm trees there, something like that. Not 500 years, probably 5,000 years later. It'd be very interesting. And he uh, was an immensely talented mm -hmm. person with a really interesting personal story because he grew up in an orphanage. Um, but it would be interesting to me today, is anybody writing in that style today? And probably when we're done with this interview, I'll think of three people, but <laughs> I can't right now. So I'm going to stick with my original position that uh, don't write a thousand page book today. Yeah. And he did it with a, in a typewriter, which just, just blows my mind. <laughs> he did it in a typewriter. Um, I actually, I, I met Michener on a couple of different occasions when he came uh, to Miami to write the book about the Caribbean. And, and, and I, I don't want to say I was his friend. I wasn't, but I knew him a wee bit. And he told me that uh, when he went to a new place, he didn't need a desk, but he asked for, I can't remember if this was in Miami or another place. He took a door and propped the door up on some cinder blocks. This is a guy who was like really wealthy. <laughs> he, he could have had to make custom make him several desks. And, and that's what he used. He also said he had a photographic memory, uh, which I, I believe um, he was incredibly smart. Um, and was willing to spend several years on each book just doing the research. And so were you a fan of the thrillers and mysteries uh, as a reader before you started to write your own books? I, I was a fan of John D. MacDonald, oh, yeah. the great fl Florida writer who wrote the Travis McGee series and influenced so many Florida writers. Uh, not just Florida writers, influenced um, Stephen King, influenced Dean Koontz, influenced Lee Child, influenced Carl Hyacinth. And it's Hyacinth um, whose first novel, his first solo novel, uh, Tourist Season, 1997, I believe, that influenced me greatly at that, at that moment in time. And I believe that if... We looked up the copyright dates. Hyacinth in 1997. I believe John Grisham's The Firm was the same year. Or we're talking about really close in time. Uh, and also Scott Turow's Presumed Innocent were uh, um, late, late 90s. And the three of those books, Hyacinth's Humor in Florida Setting, the wonderfully taught mystery of uh, Presumed Innocent Scott Turow's book, 
a mystery set in a criminal murder trial. In John Grisham's The Firm, sort of corruption of the legal process, I think those three books coalesced in me when I sat down to write to speak for the dead and create the Lassiter character. So that's been thrilling for you. I said you, you actually won the John D. McDonald Fiction Award. So you, the, one of the authors that influenced you. <laughs> and to my great pleasure and, and, and some pride, uh, the first winner of the award was Elmore Leonard. Oh. And then the se- second winner of the award was me. And I thought, whoa, I am in the high cotton now. John D. McDonald, Elmore Leonard, you know, whoa, I like, I like that. That's that's great territory to be in. <laughs> um, so, what are you uh, working on now? What's next for uh, uh, Jack Lasseter? Jake Lasseter, what's your next uh, current project? Well, I'm fooling around with a couple of ideas, uh, and CTE is going to play a prominent role in in the next one, but I haven't started writing it yet. Mm. Before I let you go, for the readers, the best place to find you, um, your website is, uh, I'm looking at your website, paul-levine.com. Uh, that's the best place for them to find you? That's the um, that's where I hang out, paul-levine.com, and uh, there are synopses of all the books and all kinds of things that are shameless self-promotion in the book world. <laughs> big, part, big part of the job, right, isn't it? <laughs> It is a big part of the job, but that is one thing that uh, does get us away from the uh, computer and dealing with uh, other people. Yes, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, too, because just so I could talk to other people. <laughs> right, right. Okay, Paul, so uh, it's a cheater's game. It's out now, so I recommend listeners to go check that out. And uh, it's been a, a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you very much, Alan. Great fun for me. We'll do it again sometime. We'll, we'll sure will. Thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.